If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Jen McQueen. The Toronto Maple Leafs have lost another one and are down 2-2 Florida. As a Boston fan, please, they are toying with you like a cat in a string. Hey! Here's hey, 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 Thompson! Get out of here, you bum! We don't need any of that. What is that? Some positivity here. Come on. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Sad news today. Uh, no, I'm not talking about the Leafs, of course, but that's another story. Let me start with some good news. The WHO, not the band, the World Health Organization, uh, has declared that COVID-19 is no longer a global pandemic emergency, ending the emergency declaration. Still around, still a concern, but no longer a worldwide emergency as uh, it has been for the last three years. So uh, good news all around. Sad news today in that uh, a former mayor of Hamilton has passed away. Uh, very sad. Uh, former mayor, city of Hamilton, Bob Wade. Uh, has uh, passed away. He was the mayor from tw- uh, 2000 to 2003, the first mayor following the amalgamation of the city. Uh, to talk right off the top more about all of this, Larry DeAnne is with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and here now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Sad day, Larry. Uh, give us your thoughts, and and, um, and then I'll ask you about amalgamation and how difficult a job was. But your, as the man, your thoughts of Bob Wade. Well, let me tell you that those who remember uh, the whole amalgamation process, which was imposed on Hamilton and its surrounding area municipalities by the province, was very acrimonious. It, uh, you know, there were all kinds of people that were uh, threatening revolt uh, and uh, very unhappy that uh, this was done in uh, not a democratic way, but an imposition of uh, provincial will on unwilling partners uh, to join with the city of Hamilton. And various communities reacted uh, with various degrees of vehemence towards that. So the first mayor, and it was um, it was Bob Wade who won that election, um, had to be a unifying force. Um, amid all of that angst, uh, you needed someone who had a firm hand on the tiller, uh, and um, and someone who uh, everybody could respect because of his calm demeanor. And Mayor Wade was all of that. Of course, he was not new to the game of politics. Uh, he had been uh, a longtime mayor in Ancaster, served on Ancaster Council before then, served on regional council, knew all of the players, uh, both in terms of staff and in terms of some of the other councillors. So when we came together in 2000 as a new group, we looked to Bob, uh, quite frankly, for stability and calm, and he delivered. He was one who brought all of these uh, different families together, and you can, uh, you know, liken it perhaps to uh, to uh, blending uh, a, a group of families uh, after a divorce, maybe in a remarriage. And although this was a forced marriage, um, we needed someone who could sort of point the way in a calm way bring the uh, the uh, bureaucracy together as well as council and i think we did fairly well in uh, heeding his calm advice uh 
uh, and uh, and dealing with the issues that we had to deal with, which in the early days had to do more with organizational factors than anything else. How come just a one term? Is it, Will amalgamation do that to you the first time out? Um, how come he retired? Well, I, asked, I often ask myself that question because I uh, personally anticipated that he'd serve more than one term and he would easily have been uh, uh, elected. Uh, but I guess he figured that he was of a certain maturity, had served for many, many years, and it was a tough job. I, I could tell uh, by the end of uh, the first term, uh, as we were struggling with budgets, you could see that sometimes the blood would be drained from his face uh, from the peace uh, that had to be kept. And, uh, and of course, uh, when he decided to step down, that's when I decided to step up and, and was elected. So, But I was expecting to serve another term and then maybe make a run for it after that, but it wasn't to be. So I think Bob just wanted to go into retirement, and he and his wife, Ida, and our condolences, of course, go out to her and the family. Uh, simply wanted uh, a, a, a slower pace, and he deserved it after so many years of good service. Uh, going back to amalgamation, and I know this takes away from the former mayor, but as you sit back now, you were there in the heat of all of this. Worth it? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you. Uh, so I, I was a counselor for many years. 17 years or so in Stony Creek um, and decided actually after the amalgamation that I was going to hang up my own uh, pleats, as it were, uh, because I'd done my bit. I was principal of a high school. I just moved to a new school in Burlington, lived in Stony Creek and thought I'd given it my shot and and, um, and was going to uh, retire from politics. But then at the last minute, and you know, politics gets into your bloodstream. I went out and nominated myself and uh, and uh, ran against colleagues, good colleagues, uh, because uh, all of our positions are disappearing. So many of us just ran against each other, not really expecting to win, but I did win. And I knew what I was getting into. I knew that um, that it was going to be acrimonious at first. There was going to be suspicion. We didn't know each other uh, around the horseshoe, and we had to deal with some major issues, not the least of which was to convince the people in our home community that we were not going to forget that home community because a lot of it had to do with local pride and why are they getting rid of us and all of that. So we had to deal with all of that. But I, I went into it and then was pleasantly surprised that many, not all, but many of the other counselors who went into it, the outlier was Flambrook, quite frankly, where they went in to make sure that, that the spanner would be thrown into the works because their community um, was expecting that of them. But I found that when I went in with, a, a, you know, the counselors from Dundas and from Ancaster and, and to some extent Lambrook, uh, we all went in wanting to make things work. Because if they didn't work, they, everybody would be dis- disadvantaged, including our own, our own um, uh, constituents back uh, in our former municipalities. And then I also found, quite frankly, that, uh, you know, the forest, Stony Creek didn't disappear. Neither did Dundas, neither did Ancaster, mm. neither did Glambrook, neither did Flambrook. Mm. None of us disappeared. None of those communities disappeared. But they were, you know, subsumed into a larger entity. And in many respects, amalgamation was good uh, in terms of clarifying lines of communication, processes, mm. Um, and uh, and things that uh, irked folks who were trying to do business with the city of Hamilton. Um, so so that was good. 
What wasn't so good at the time, of course, was that as we amalgamated and saved money doing that, I, I seem to recall we saved about $60 million a year um, uh, in terms of the amalgamated streamlined processes, the province downloaded a whole bunch of expenses, about $60 million worth of expenses. So the, the, the ordinary taxpayer, the everyday taxpayer, didn't see the savings that we were mm. able to achieve because as we saved from the left side, we spent from the right side. And Man, so is that not the way it goes? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. But but I would say in many respects we're a better community because uh, we still have our local identity, but we're a unified community, much stronger as a city trying to do things together. Well said. Larry DeAnne with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, talking about another former mayor. Hamilton's Bob Wade passed away at the age of 89 and chatting about the past. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too, Scott. So uh, you might be asking yourself, or maybe you're not, Dave Woodard, not here today, a normal news anchor, 900 CHML, here on the show. He drew the short straw, short straw, uh, and got the gig to go to Canada's Wonderland for their media day, their opening day, and he's joining us now. Dave, I hope you're having a good time. Are you on the, like, are you on terra firma, or are you on a coaster somewhere? Currently, I'm on, t- currently I'm on terra firma, uh, but I was on some roller coasters earlier and i'm happy to be on dry land let me tell you uh it's, it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun it's uh it's a tough job uh to to come here and have to report on the opening day of canada's wonderland um it's the 42nd year that it's been in existence and uh, uh outside of you know the few years of the pandemic uh it's really kind of been one of those things that uh people look forward to kind of as a rite of spring uh, you know, when Canada Wonderland uh, opens. And the great thing about doing this gig, Dave, is that there's no lineups. You just get on and ride and ride and ride and ride. What's that experience been like for you? Have you been on the Leviathan? What are the big, uh, is, what's the new stuff there this year? You know what? Actually, it's funny because I'm standing right underneath, not right underneath, but underneath the Leviathan right now. It's one of the only rides I haven't been on. Uh, the big one for me uh, was the Yukon Striker. Uh, mm. I was on that earlier today. That was a lot of fun. There may be some audio somewhere of me on that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if you want to play Of you that, screaming? Of you just like screaming? Is that what we're going to hear? Screaming in the wind going by. It, it, there may have been a lot of oh no, oh no, oh no uh, <laughs> before, <laughs> before going down. Uh, but uh, there, there. You asked about uh, new rides. There are a couple of new rides. There's one called the uh, Tundra Twister, uh, and there's one called uh, Snoopy's uh, Rail uh, Raceway, and both of them aren't open just yet. They are getting you know, putting them together. They're hoping to have them open by the end of this month, uh, mm-hmm. but it's not stopping people from coming in and checking out uh, everything that's here. Are you planning to go on the Leviathan? Uh, are you going to end the day with that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that you, it's not that you get tired of roller coasters. So there is a point at which at which you say maybe you know walking away is the is the better idea. Here. Go get not, but go not, get yourself said, go get yourself a foot long hot dog and get in line, buddy. Let's go. Come on. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe I'll uh, go by the uh, funnel cake place first, and then I'll uh, take the Leviathan and see how that goes.
So are you a roller coaster guy? Do you enjoy these sorts of things? Because some people are really into them. My kids, I mean, I, I remember going to Leviathan with my daughter when she was even a few years younger, quite a bit younger, and I'm like hanging on for dear life. She's got her hands in the air, and I'm like, put your hands down, grab onto that railing. <laughs> are, are you a roller coaster guy? I would say that I enjoy roller coasters. It's not one of those things where it's, it's a, a huge adrenaline rush for me. Um, but it is one of those things that, uh, before I got on the Yukon, uh, striker and, uh, the person that I was with, uh, one of the communications people, she said, we'll get you on at the front. And I said, that's great because you're actually sitting and you're looking over this peak where you're eventually going to go straight down. So you can see the whole thing. And I'll be honest, mm. Scott, I was a little nervous. My hands were shaking before I got on the ride. So, uh, you know, I don't, I say that I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but that was a lot of fun. I got to admit. All right. So, uh, the Leviathan or the around the Bay road race, what would you rather do? <laughs> uh, probably the Leviathan. It's just a little bit shorter, Scott, just a little bit. <laughs> That's right. The pain, the pain and agony is only for a minute or so. Oh, man. All right. So the park officially opens this weekend and everything's up and running, uh, with the exception of the couple of new ones you were talking about. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, we had a lot of people come through the doors today. A lot of kids and, uh, and parents, too, playing hooky to uh, come down to the park and, and uh, enjoy the first day of uh, Canada's Wonderland. All right, Dave Woodard with us, news anchor with uh, 900 CHML, uh, visibly absent today and enjoying the grand opening of Wonderland and doing some tough reporting there. Dave, have a good time and get on that Leviathan. <laughs> I will do. Thanks, Scott. Tomorrow, I'll, I guess in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock this morning, I guess coverage starts. Uh, 3 o'clock tomorrow morning, Friday night, Saturday morning, whatever you want to call it, uh, is the coronation of King Charles. What does this event and the UK monarchy mean to Canadians in 2023? Let's bring in Sam Routley, PhD candidate with the Department of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario. You can also read him in the conversation, the National Post and the Hill Times with an expertise in the monarchy. Sam, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sam, I'm certainly seeing a lot of coverage of this, considering some are saying, wow, why are we even doing this anymore, which it seems to happen every time we mention the monarchy. But your thoughts on this version of a coronation, obviously, if you compare it back to the Queen's completely different era and time. But what are your thoughts on how this has changed or modernized? Sure. I mean, what's interesting about this, right, is that it's the first time for most of us, right, that we've kind of seen this happen. Um because even though I think a lot of the the legitimacy of the of the monarchy itself has kind of declined, um, Elizabeth was able to kind of maintain that personal popularity. Um, and what's interesting about this moment is is we're kind of getting a sense of how the institution will sort of carry on now that she's gone up. And and what really matters here is that even though even though Charles is kind of the focus of attention, um, the purpose of the coronation here is to kind of demonstrate the longevity of the institution um, and to kind of try and bring it into um, kind of this modern era while also kind of maintaining these these kind of traditional uh, elements. Is the tone changing uh, towards the monarchy um, or, you know, because let's be honest, everybody loved the queen. Uh, those that were old enough to remember uh, Chuck and Diana have a certain view of Charles. Uh, but then uh, waiting in the wings is uh, is Will and Kate. So uh, are, are people wanting to sort of shove it off or just let's get through this guy so we can get to the next one? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely interesting because I think 
uh, like historically, traditionally, part of what sustained the monarchy was was that the monarch was supposed to the monarch was not only like this political figure, but was supposed was supposedly seen as this moral example um, that they were an individual that the nation or, or the people are are supposed to aspire towards. And I think because kind of Charles grows up in this kind of celebrity culture, right, that we've kind of exposed that's exposed every one of his faults in a way that we know he no longer has that sort of unvarnished image that per, that perhaps his uh, mother had. Um, but I mean, in terms of um, how Canadians feel is that there's a sense in which um, it's it's British, right? Like, I think that 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 it's not only a foreign institution, but that it's kind of very much against a lot of these kind of democratic values that, that we've come to embrace in the last uh, couple of decades. How do you divide that between reality and history? I mean, we all know, uh, you know, like, uh, let's be honest, people talk about Canada should ha- should have a different head of state, whatever. But this is largely a ceremonial uh, position uh, as such. Is it history or is is it about the future? Uh, how do you balance all of this? Yeah, I mean, well, I think the the monarchy most definitely uh, maintains this very preeminent position. Um, in kind of the formal constitutional sense, um, <clears throat> there's not much around that per se. But I mean, in terms of uh, this kind of public uh, legitimacy, this public support, um, even though Canada was kind of historically founded to kind of be this this um, constituent or this this kind of uh, to to be connected to this kind of broader kind of British civilization, uh, we've kind of gone our own way um, since the 1960s. Um, that that a lot of these kind of values and, and ideas that underpin the idea of a monarchy, like uh, like authority and tradition, heritage, um, are are very much in tension with with the values that we emphasize today. You know, things like individual freedom and, and equality, and and uh, this idea that um, political power, right, the, the legitimacy of the government, um, doesn't flow down from the monarch, but it kind of comes up from the from the consent of the governed. Um, so, I mean, it seems we're definitely, we have been, I think it seems to me that we're going down this path, you know, further and further away from kind of the idea, ideals that the, that the monarchy represents. Can you see the day when Canada says, nope, we're out completely and divides itself? Or do people realize just how difficult that is and how it takes the consensus of an awful large part of the country? Yeah, I think you're right. Is that, um, I think what what matters here is that um, Canadians don't have this disdain for the monarchy as much as they're indifferent towards it. Um, they quite honestly don't think about it that much. I think is really where they're at, um, which means that you know the the actual process of separating from the monarchy is it just it's it's too complex too complex and and controversial of a process to kind of. Um, and that to prevent any sort of political will to, to see that through. Um, there's not only this question of sort of what comes after, but the fact that a lot of these like very important national questions uh, that that people fought over uh, incessantly for you know the last sixty or so years, right? That those will inevitably come up again in this very complex and acrimonious process. And I just don't simply think. Uh, we're willing to go down that path. We're sort of willing to maintain this status quo, quo as much as we kind of aren't necessarily 
perfectly satisfied with it. And when you think of where we are politically, it's like, how are you ever going to get any all of Canadians to agree on any one thing? There's so much we don't agree on. Uh, good luck with this one. What about Harry? Where does he fit into all this? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely uh, contributes, like I said, to uh, this kind of celebrity image, right? That, that uh, like I said, um, Charles is supposed to, as king, he's supposed to maintain this authority from this from this uh, position of uh, 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 as a moral example and, and, and at a higher plane, right, than the average person. And I think the fact that a lot of these very personal family conflicts are kind of at the forefront um, doesn't Could- exactly make that easy. Could you see him just giving it to the kids for the sake of the monarchy to preserve it if it gets too rough for him? Or is he more, hey, I've been waiting this long. Yeah, I'm going to get my hands off the steering wheel. Yeah, I mean, I think even though, like, for the last couple of years, right, the, the, a lot of talk has been about this question about, you know, is Charles just this um, transitional figure? Is he going to give over the throne? Uh kind of actually contrast i think from the way he sees it personally i think he's been uh, because i mean he's been uh because he's in his mid-70s now and, and i mean he's been preparing for this his entire life uh and i think he's prepared to i mean not necessarily bring in these kind of drastic changes but i mean i think he has a certain agenda a certain approach uh to what he wants to do in his time as day. Uh, that he's going to implement over the next couple of years, regardless of of how sort of we feel about it. Sam Routley with us, PhD candidate with the Department of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario, talking about the coronation of King uh, Charles happening very early tomorrow morning. Sam, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we've talked about this a bit. Radley and I have been, um, um, you know, jawing about it as well. And if you're watching last uh, night's Leaf game or any of the playoff games, you're obviously seeing the sports betting uh, commercials that are not only commercials but embedded into uh, the show itself. And again, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not a, a gambler at all. I'm way too cheap for that, but I got nothing against those that want to do it. I know people that are quite into it and, and play the game and what have you. So, um, couldn't care less whether you're gambling or not. What I really have a problem with is if you want to buy ads, go buy your ads like Coke and Pepsi and, and KFC do. Uh, and after 30 seconds, we're at the fridge anyway. Uh, but to actually bring it into the actual sporting event, where you're hearing commentators giving odds and saying what they think, uh, you know, this person is best at or what have you, this team. That's where I have a real problem with it. You don't see Ron McLean up there with a bucket of chicken go, hey, boys, have you tried the new whatever? Uh, have you tried the gravy with the fries or whatever? Yet it seems with the gambling ads, they've made their way right into, embedded right into the actual show uh, and part of the programming as opposed to just a banner. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Antonia Mantanakis, Professor of Marketing and uh, Consumer Psychology, Brock University, and with us now. Antonia, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. 
I mean, I understand this, and I understand why they've done all this. You know, they could do it online out of the U.S. anyway, so I, I get why, you know, we're doing this now. But again, I have a problem with this going above what normal advertising is and actually embedding it into uh, the actual broadcast with the hosts and whoever. I mean, you don't see them eating pizza and chicken wings up there, yet we're hearing about betting. What are your thoughts on this? And again, I mean, I, normally I wouldn't be bothered by this, but to me, it's like it's way overexposed. Yeah, well, with any kind of marketing and marketing messages that that a marketer can create, it's about capturing attention. And so, how do we capture? Mm-hmm. You know, how does how does one capture consumers' attention? And one way historically of doing that is by pairing up with celebrities or pairing up with endorsers of some sort. And typically, those types of associations or endorsers are chosen because of that trust or that likability or that authenticity. I mean, certainly we've seen uh, the portfolio of brands that Wayne Gretzky has represented over the years. And and that's great. Wayne Gretzky is likable, you know, trustworthy, uh, you know, attractive. And, you know, consumers are drawn to that and they, they, they tend to uh, believe or trust or get more attention and awareness towards the products and services that a celebrity like that would endorse. You know, Antonia, Antonia, not to interrupt, yeah. but you know, I get all of that. I mean, I yeah. like the commercial with Haley and, and Gretzky trading cards and eating Tim Hortons, but you don't see them there smoking weed and drinking a bud. So why do we see them gambling? Right. And that's where, and that's where the, you know, AGCO is, uh, you know, right to be concerned about who, when, when we think about who is the celebrity endorser and who, what market do they target, right? When we think about Wayne Gretzky and think about the boomer generation or the older consumer generation X, for instance, that is, is an established consumer that is a consumer who, you know, can make effective decisions. They know about their habits. If they want to choose to gamble or spend their money on gambling, that's acceptable. Or but people wouldn't question that. But when you look at a younger uh, target market, or sorry, when you look at a celebrity who would appeal more to a younger consumer, that's when you call it into question. That's when you kind yeah. of say, are you trying to target minors here? Are they the ones paying attention? Is that the platform we really want to use? Because the audience to that to that platform, to that celebrity, is younger. And so that's where, where you can call it into question. So, Antonia, do, what do you think here? Is this gone too far? Do they need to be pulled back? Is there, I mean, I hate regulation and restrictions, those words. Right. But uh, that being said, I mean, does something need to be done here? Well, I, I would say that it's a valid concern to consider who the celebrity endorser is, what the product category is, right? So when we look at if it's perfume or if it's clothing or makeup or, you know, product categories that aren't necessarily addictive or problematic for a younger consumer, uh, then it's, it's, it's okay, but when we're talking about product categories like gambling, like smoking, or any kind of other potentially unhealthy or addictive behavior, then you really have to question how are we going about 
communicating our message. You know, as, as a marketer, how are we going about communicating our message? And are we crossing the line of who we're trying to really target here? Are we targeting, are we essentially targeting a younger consumer by the choice of the celebrity? I would say yes. No? Yeah. 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 We'll see what happens. Antonia Mantanakis is with us, Professor of Marketing, Consumer Psychology, Brock University, talking about not only the ads, uh, gambling ads that are on, but the fact that they have now inserted themselves right into the programming. How long before we see Haley and Wayne and Ron McClain all up there with a bucket of chicken and, um, you know, a Bud Light and a doobie going? I mean, it's like, honestly, uh, product sampling is one thing, uh, but I think this has gone too far. Uh, am I approved? We'll see. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, lots of news today, but here locally, the big story is former mayor, city of Hamilton, Bob Wade, has passed away at the age of 89. And the first mayor uh, to take us past uh, amalgamation in the year 2000. To talk more about all of this, uh, a mayor that was just there not too long ago, Fred Eisenberger with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, and is here now. Fred, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. Uh, Very well, Scott, and thanks for having me on. So your thoughts, Fred, that come to mind when uh, you hear the name Bob Wade and and what he's done for our city? Oh, listen, I know Bob uh, Bob and I have a great uh, history together. Uh, You know, I certainly knew him as as the frequently acclaimed mayor of Ancaster, which I uh, I always chided him about, which, you know, I, I, I just just once wanted an acclamation. And he said to me, uh, you know, after 2000, after he did his two, three year stance, he says, that'll never happen again in, in the history of our city. But um, uh, he he served our city so spectacularly well as the mayor of Ancaster many, many times. And then, uh, you know, just did a superlative job of, uh, of leading us in, in the beginning stages of amalgamation. And they were very difficult trying times. And I, you know, Bob and I ran against each other to uh, you know, try and secure that spot back in 1999 to get ready for the 2000 and 2003 term. And uh, Bob Morrow was a, another candidate. And I would, uh, I would, uh, I said often, and I say again today that Bob was the right choice at the right time. He was that kind of grandfatherly, wise, gentle, uh, liked by everybody individual that could bring people together and make uh, amalgamation work. And he certainly did that in his uh, three-year term. And uh, was also wise enough to uh, to know that uh, when his time was up, it was time for him to move on and pass it on to other folks. So, uh, you know, just a wise uh, gentleman. Uh, Ida, his wife, was uh, spectacular, just a sweetheart. And, you know, it was a, it was a, a person from another era, quite frankly. He was... Uh, he was just a reliable, respected, uh, someone you could count on that uh, didn't meander all over the place uh, as a as a leader in our community. And I certainly, from my perspective, uh, I emulated a lot of things that Bob did and uh, and the kind of demeanor he had, and certainly served me well as well. But he he remained and uh, was always a trusted advisor and a great friend, and he's a great loss for our city. That's interesting, Fred. What do you think you learned from him as you look back and then at your time as mayor? I'll tell you that, uh, you know, one of the one of the lessons that Bob either spoke to me about or said and something that I put into practice uh, often was uh, be be the calmest guy in the room. It gives you time to uh, think and evaluate and assess. And so if you get all jittery and panicky and get caught up in the 
in the hoopla, then uh, you really can't kind of put your thoughts to uh, you know to good use. So being the calmest guy in the room was uh, was probably the biggest lesson that he, uh, he shared with me. But you know, just his demeanor and how he went about bringing people together was uh, some something that we uh, I also emulated. And uh, you know, I may not have been as successful as he was uh, at doing that, but certainly uh, you know, in my twelve years as mayor, I put a lot of that. Uh, Bob Wadeism into practice as often as I could. Calmest one in the room. Boy, that is great advice for any situation when you think about it. Are you surprised he only did one term, especially after pulling everybody together with amalgamation, or would that just burn you out? Well, you know, I think he was pretty burned out. Uh, you know, he, those were very, very difficult trying years. You had a, you know, you had a group of councillors, many of whom had no interest in, in amalgamation and had to be brought along. And then, you know, others that were passionate and wanted to get it done sooner, faster, quicker. You know, the local identity piece that uh, that Bob entrenched in uh, in the uh, community at large to ensure that Ancaster would remain Ancaster from an identity perspective or Benbrook or Dundas or uh, Flamborough or Waterdown. All of those things have remained, and that you know the identity in those places is very, very strong, and that that, that in large part came from uh, from Bob Wade. But the exercise of working through those three years uh, at you know at, at that time he would have been you know late sixties, early seventies, twenty four years ago. Uh, is my math right? I hope it is. Uh, he uh, you know he, he it, it, very challenging job at the best of times, and certainly uh, he had. He had put 25 years into politics at that point in time, and I think he probably thought it's time for me to start to en enjoy my kids and my grandkids that uh, that he certainly did in, in a very, very big way. So I would say uh, it was a wise decision on his part and uh, others, uh, Larry Dianney thereafter and uh, myself, uh, you know, built on the foundation that he started. Well said. Fred Eisenberger with us, former mayor for the city of Hamilton, commenting on the passing of former mayor Bob Wade. Fred, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. All the best. The Red Dress exhibit has opened at the Hamilton Public Library Central Branch uh, today. It's going to run until May 19th. The exhibit is a path of 21 dresses hung on wardrobe racks and bearing the stories of 12 victims is a symbolic representation of the all too many indigenous women and girls and two spirit people in Canada harmed by violence. To talk more about all of this, Shelley Hill is with us, manager, Indigenous Relations, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Shelley, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks for having Shelley, me. Shelley, tell us about the Red Dress exhibit. What's the objective here? Well, the objective is the exhibit focuses on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, the final report, in particular to Justice Number 1.9, uh, we call upon all governments to develop laws, policies, and public education campaigns to challenge the acceptance and normalization of violence. So this exhibit is part of a larger plan to bring awareness um, and to also help with the community uh, to create a pathway for other organizations as well as the broader public to educate themselves on the missing murder indigenous women and girls uh, two-spirited uh, in Canada. Are Canadians' attitudes changing towards all of this uh, exposure of events like this? Obviously, what we've seen at residential schools and and the unmarked graves there and such. How have Canadians changed their opinion? 
I'd like to say that um, in the work that we've been doing through the city of Hamilton, um, we're seeing a lot of positive changes, and especially with understanding uh, that there is definitely more that needs to be done in bringing that awareness and education you know, with with many issues, especially with the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, um, two-spirited. And, you know, and the fact that today, um, you know, it now it's now a national emergency. It's an epidemic. Thank you. What What's it like for the Indigenous community to now see these exhibits, have these exhibits, things like this brought forward? Uh, how important is it? It is definitely very important um, to continue to um, sh- um, share and to bring the awareness of, you know, the social injustice of what's happening. And it's it's sort of a mixed uh, emotions of on many levels. Um, you know, it's yes, we're, you know, when you start thinking about the various uh, levels of grievances, um, that's happening and you see a display those are some triggers it could be reminders there's all kinds of different things and emotions and feelings that um that we we go through because not only does it affect you know ourselves individually but also families and generations as well as you know um the community uh obviously indigenous communities want the history told want their history told uh many canadians especially if you're my uh, demographic my age i always felt we grew up with a void in history we didn't hear this side of the story and now uh as an older person i I very much want to hear that do you find that canadians are, are are feeling the same way that they want to know what the other side of the story is it it it's always seems that we're we've been missing key pieces to the puzzle here in our telling of canadian history are you finding non-indigenous canadians now want to hear your story the other side of the story yes we're finding that more and more through our work and um, especially um, we're finding more and more people are wanting are reaching out to us and asking, you know, what can they do? How can they help to bring this awareness through um, as well as how can they get involved? Um, they definitely want to learn more and um, we encourage people to continue to attend community events Um you know, throughout the city, as well as um, service organizations that continue to help uh, with the Indigenous uh, community to bring the awareness of where it needs to be and to continue to campaign and educate uh, the importance, uh, especially as today. As today. Many uh, non-Indigenous Canadians don't know what to do, don't know what to say. How important is it for us just to listen to the stories that you're telling. Yes, it is very, very important, um, you know, to understand the true history. And um, as we continue to, um, you know, bring out what needs to be shared and the true, you know, and to bring out um, and to understand, to have that understanding of how difficult it is to share such stories, but yet, to be open about it and to be coachable and to, you know, just do what you can to, to support, um, you know, everything that's happening and, and, and as 
best way that you can, right? Not everyone uh, has a capacity to do what they they have to do, but um, just sharing and, um, you know, just bringing the awareness and, and spreading the word and wearing red today, you know, which is um, very important to bring that awareness of what's happening because it is a national, you know, day and now declared a national emergency. Um, we can just continue to support, you know, these various initiatives and, um, and to learn. There's many, um, there's many opportunities to, you know, hear stories and learn more, uh, even on our website at, um, you know, city of Hamilton slash indigenous say we have dot CA, sorry, we have many, um, resources available that could help broaden, you know, the education and understanding that needs to happen. And you can learn more at the Red Dress exhibit opening at their open now at the Hamilton Public Library's Central Branch today, and it runs until May 19th. Shelly, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It is 900 CHML on Hamilton. We're coming back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. So you know where we are coming out of a global uh, pandemic. As a matter of fact, the World Health Organization today saying they're dropping the emergency um, uh, declaration. It's no longer a global pandemic emergency, although it is still around. But lots of things have changed since then. Everybody looking for the new normal. And here's an oxymoron. Jobful recession. How can that be? Uh, continued growth in Canada's labor market might see more Canadians hold on to jobs as the economy dips even into a possible recession, Inclode, uh, according to the uh, latest employment data released. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm glad to be with you. I'm fine. Job, uh, Jobful recession. Have we ever had one of those before? How unusual is this? Well, very unusual. In fact, that was a new term to me. I had not heard it before today. So this goes to prove that you can still learn new things. What what they're trying to say is the following. Um, In a recession, typically, we see jobs lost and we see unemployment go up. Our economy has been stubbornly holding on to jobs. And in fact, in the month of April, we added 41,000 more jobs. The unemployment rate is unchanged at 5%. That's where it's been since December, and it's just a hair's breadth away from the lowest it's ever been, which is 4.9%. So we've really got full employment even now into April. Now, we're also not in a recession at this moment. A recession is defined as two quarters in which the economy shrinks. We haven't had one quarter where it shrunk. We've had the odd month so far that's been tough tough going, but so far, over three, we haven't had a quarter that's lost. So uh, most people feel we still might slip into a recession. I call it a technical recession. We technically fit the definition in the latter half of this year. But given the strength in the job market, it may be such a mild recession, no one's going to feel it because no one's going to be losing jobs during the recession. And that's almost unheard of. This really speaks more, I think, to the unique time we've been going through with a pandemic and the ups and downs caused by it then really what is it would be a true economic recession. This is more of just sort of a pandemic recession. 
Um, do we know if, or, because many people have been using the R word, as they said, for, or say, yep. for a long time, and we haven't got there yet, is these, uh, un- are these employment numbers keeping us from getting there? Um, well, actually, the key definition in a recession is the economic growth and the GDP numbers, and the GDP numbers have remained okay. Not great, but above zero. And in fact, Uh, In their most recent meeting, the Bank of Canada suggested that economic growth over the rest of this year might be around 1.1%. Now, that's nothing to write home about. It's not a great number. But for there to be a recession, that number almost should be negative. The fact that the Bank of Canada thinks it's going to be 1.1% says we might dodge a recession altogether. This fear that we've had hanging over our head for the better part of two years might not come to fruition. The boy who cries wolf. But if there is a turndown, and we'll see what the summer brings, consumer spending in the summer, although my feeling is it's going to be strong, but you know we never know for certain. If it does turn down, it'll be such a slight turndown, we may not feel it at all. Is this all about, or a, a, a main factor, about demographics, people retiring, and just a change in a post-pandemic world? Well, in part, I think why most people were thinking a recession was going to be caused this year was the rapid rise of interest rates last year. Remember, we started the year at just 0.25%. We ended the year at 4.25%. And so borrowing money to buy homes, borrowing money to buy cars and trucks, that is one of the things that fuels our economy. And people were worried when you see the biggest increase in interest rates ever. We'd never seen a 4% increase over a 12-month period in Canadian history. Was that going to cause a shockwave into the economy? The surprise, Scott, is that so far it hasn't. It has slowed things, which is exactly what the Bank of Canada want, but not to the point that there has been a freeze. And if we can continue to avoid that, we may avoid that recession altogether. You talked about this being new territory. It's unusual, uh, an anomaly. I don't know. Uh, are we missing something here? Are we going to get blindsided by something we've never experienced like this or even a pandemic for that matter? Yeah, it, it, you may be right. I, I think it's more the case that uh, when we had the bad news with inflation, again, remember, it was just in June of last year. It hasn't even been a year when, when the inflation rate hit 8.1%. There were a lot of people who said, well, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and a recession has to be around the corner. And I was worried then that we'd cause our own recession. In other words, if enough of us kept saying it out loud, maybe we'd make it happen, like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Um, But so far, it shows we've had a very resilient economy, which is what I think, uh, not to lay credit or blame anywhere, but I think the federal government in Ottawa was hoping the economy would be fairly resilient and could take some of these shocks and not necessarily fall apart. But we didn't know. And so I think this is why the fear was there, as they always say, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Still seeing U.S. uh, raising their interest rates different there? Well, yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Just two days ago, the Federal Reserve Board raised interest rates again, uh, 0.25%. Now their prime rate is 5%. Canada's at 4.5. We rarely see the two uh, institutions differ. Um, And when they did this just two days ago, they said that they felt their inflation was, and this is the quote, sticky, meaning that the coming down of interest of inflation that we've been seeing in Canada 
they were not seeing at the same rate in the United States. Thus, they felt they needed to hit the brakes one more time. Now, we'll know what April's inflation rate was in another two weeks. I'm, I'm still hopeful that it's possible uh, April's inflation rate might have cracked 4%. In other words, it might be down into the 3.7, 3.8% range. If it continues like this, we could actually start to see the Bank of Canada cut interest rates. That normally stimulates the economy before the year is out. So we just got to kind of hold on for three or four more months and if all the trends continue the way they're going, we may avoid a recession and we may start to see those interest rates come back. Marvin Ryder with us, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, uh, talking about uh, a jobful recession, a new term. Yep, lots of new things post-pandemic. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. I will. You do the same. Christian Leprec is with us, professor at both the Royal uh, Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. And every time I get him on, I try to cram so much stuff into one segment, but we'll do our best here. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes. Good afternoon, Scott. Always a pleasure. Okay, Christian, I want to get your take on uh, the Michael Chong affair. Uh, obviously, uh, his family being targeted, uh, allegedly, by Chinese Communist Party uh, operatives working here and such. The Prime Minister uh, insisting earlier on in the week that he didn't know anything about this, that CSIS is not getting the information, filtering it up. Uh, then MP Michael Chong comes out and says in the House of Commons that's not the case, that in fact the National Security Advisor told him that the CSIS information was put up the chain. Uh, who do we believe here? We've got a prime minister versus a Canadian, a Canadian institution and the national security advisor. Who do we believe as Canadians? So, look, I think the what the prime minister certainly does need to account for is the responsibility that a senior member of parliament who happens to be in charge of the foreign affairs portfolio and thus quite prominently on a quite controversial portfolio and a portfolio that has not always lined up with the government um, by virtue of the fact that they are the, her, his majesty's loyal of opposition was targeted by a state that is very powerful and has one of the most uh, most most uh, active and powerful intelligence services of the world and that ultimately security intelligence is responsible for ensuring that this type of intelligence to protect the democratic institutions of the state gets to the right decision makers at the right time the prime minister certainly needs to answer for the fact that what is going on with his civil service that he is responsible for, if that sort of information does not reach him. I don't think reaching back and simply saying it's the civil service's fault. I would have to say that the prime minister needs to account for the decision-making structures that he is responsible for uh, if indeed that material did not reach him. Since it did reach the National Security and Intelligence Advisor's office, I mean, that's not one, one person. That's 140 people. And so the the contention that somehow it got stuck there, I find very difficult to believe. Now, there is bureaucratic dysfunction, but when the National Security Intelligence Advisor reaches out directly to the member of parliament affected, and it appears in a way that may not have been coordinated with the prime minister's office, 
that suggests to me that there was concern in the civil service that perhaps the way matters are being portrayed do not entirely line up with um, what the civil service knows about this particular file. And I get the sense that, as is common with the current federal government, one way out of these issues is to throw the civil service under the bus, whether it's on contracting or on this particular situation. And I wonder whether Ms. Thomas, uh, and I don't want to draw inferences, I don't know about the context, um, is sort of also standing up for the civil service here and saying, look, the civil service did what it had to do. Um, other inferences are for other decision makers to draw. If it was um, if it was going up the chain of command, would this information be leaked? I mean, it just seems why would they why would they leak information if it's getting to the prime minister's office into the prime minister? Well, clearly, we know by virtue of the fact that it reached the Globe and Mail, uh, it would appear that someone had access to this report. Um, and the fact that it made the stage of a report within CSIS means it went through several stages of vetting. So simply saying, oh, you know, this is just somebody who posted somebody on a, on a Facebook site or something like that. Uh, the, the, the level of threat here is clearly significantly more sophisticated. And the prime minister said uh, that, for instance, diplomats would be, uh, uh, would be thrown out of the country uh, if it meets a criminal threshold, what we have here is evidence by CSIS of a conspiracy. Conspiracy under the criminal code is a criminal code offense. So I see a lot of sort of dithering on the part of the government uh, in light of information and intelligence that is much more systematic and much more uh, robust uh, than perhaps the government is prepared to admit at this time. Uh, and I think it comes at a very inopportune time, of course, the National Convention of the Liberal Party. Um, why is there a delay in expelling this diplomat if everybody agrees that this is wrong? And I've heard the reasoning that, you know, there's Canadians being held in China and, and so on. Well, when is that not happening? I mean, that's always seems to be the case. Scott, you and I and other Canadians have asked that question about many files that involve China when it comes to this particular government, uh, where we're constantly slow rolling the files and constantly trying to either not make a decision or drag out decision as long as we possibly can. We can all speculate why that may be, but certainly this is the pattern that I think we would expect from the government, uh, that here a hard decision is required when it comes to China and the government is trying to avoid making hard decisions, whether that's because it's in a minority situation uh, or because the government has other reasons that it believes it doesn't want to make difficult decisions. Uh, clearly, you can already see China firing shots across the bow, uh, which will make it all the more difficult for Canada now to make uh, to make that type of decision. But clearly, I mean, other countries have expelled Chinese diplomats. China has the second largest foreign diplomatic service representation in Canada after the United States, but it has significantly fewer nationals. There's about a million Americans who live in Canada. So, you know, maybe it's a good time to start asking about what are all these Chinese diplomats doing here? And if they're engaging in nefarious activity, maybe it's time to send a signal. This seems to be getting worse every day. There's more information every day. Where is this going, Christian? Where? How does the prime minister deal with this? How does he handle this? Where does he, what's happening next week or the week after that? Well, my sense is that we got this from uh, his chief of staff, uh, Ms. Telford's testimony before committee. The government thinks it can manage the narrative and it can manage the evidence related to this file because it's a national security and intelligence file where they believe they control the evidence. And I'd always cautioned that that's a very dangerous approach to take because that risks generating more leaks, which is, of course, exactly what is happening here. 
rather than in these sorts of situations where I think it's it's incumbent upon the government just to come clean with exactly what happened, who knew what, and just kind of say like, well, you know, things didn't go exactly as they should have. Here's what we're doing to fixing the situation. And by the way, we're going to need to send a clear deterrent to this hostile authoritarian actor that's meddling on a number of fronts in uh, in Canadian democracy. I can't think of a more serious threat to Canadian democracy than effectively undermining our sovereignty by trying to threaten, extort, and coerce a senior member of parliament that is questioning some of the government's uh, own policies uh, and that is trying to draw a harder line. I mean, this is ultimately about defending Canadian sovereignty. Uh, and I'm disappointed in the government that the government does not prepare, uh, appear to be prepared to stand up for sovereign democratic decision making in this country. Yeah, if not this, what? Uh, Christian Leprac with us, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Always a pleasure, Christian. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Scott. Have a lovely weekend. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You might remember about three years ago, March break, I think the kids were out, and all of a sudden the government said, go home and stay there until we tell you to come out. And the ride of this global pandemic started uh, today. Pretty significant information. The World Health Organization has declared that COVID-19 pandemic is no longer a global health emergency uh, and uh, bringing an end to the emergency declaration, although obviously the virus is still with us. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, one of the many doctors and experts that held our hand for the last three years and, and got us through this and guided us and and shared information as best he could. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to chat, Scott. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember when, man, it was almost daily we were chatting with you. Um, now that you look at the, and we'll talk about the World Health Organization's declaration in a second, but as you look back, Isaac, on the last three years, and, and my goodness, you were at the forefront of all of this, what do you think of? What, 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 what have you processed or digested of where we are now? Yeah, I mean, when we look at where we're at right now, obviously, we still see COVID and it's it's not gone. It's just we're, we're clearly in a much better place than where we were before. And as you point out, it wasn't that long ago where wave after wave was hitting us that would overwhelm our healthcare system. And, you know, obviously, uh, we're nowhere near that at this point in time with COVID-19. Now, certainly, our healthcare system needs help and needs support, but it, COVID is, it, it is not single-handedly imploding our system. Having said that, you know, it's still here. It's not going to go away. Uh, it's going to continue to wax and wane. Uh, sadly, it's going to prey on more vulnerable individuals like older individuals and those with underlying medical conditions. Uh, and we obviously need to take steps to protect all Canadians, not just some. But but it's, it's nothing like what it was in, you know, the dark days of the spring of 2021. Obviously, as you mentioned, we hear it is still with us. What does this World Health Organization declaration mean in the removing of the word uh, health emergency or the words health emergency? What does that mean? How do we get there? I think, you know, just from an, any individual listening, it's probably not going to have any impact on their day to day life. Um, no. You know, it, there's, there's certainly a psychological component to hear from the head of the World Health Organization that, you know, this is no longer a public health emergency. I think it's also important to point out that, you know, the head of the WHO and other public health leaders are still saying, listen, COVID's still here. We've still got to take it seriously. 
it's just not the same public health emergency that that it once was. Um, but but you know when we you take a look more locally here in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada, you know we still have systems in place to help monitor, for example, wastewater to look for pathogens, including COVID nineteen. We can sort of monitor how it's waxing and waning. We can measure hospitalization. So we still have some of our infrastructure up and running. Uh, and and you know this is good not just for COVID, but for other other infections that are circulating in the community of public health significance. Um, but you know, I, I, again, it's it's it is it's a special day. It's also a point to reflect, right? There, there's over 52,000 Canadians that have died from COVID-19. The modeling projects over 20 million people globally have died from COVID-19. So you know, well, it's, it's it's obviously good news that we're in a much better place right now. It's also an important time to reflect on so many people who have been directly impacted by this. We remember way back when, when all of a sudden, uh, quickly, very quickly, a vaccine was developed and then it was getting it distri- uh, distributed and put in arms and the age categories and such because we just didn't have the facilities we're hearing uh, this week. Moderna has a finishing facility coming. Your thoughts on uh, the advancements we've made there? Oh, tremendous, tremendous advancements in, in vaccination. And I think, you know, putting vaccine production here in Canada is a huge win. I mean, listen, when you compare Canada to the rest of the world, we were one of the best in terms of having early access and rapid access to the vaccines. Obviously, we compared ourselves to the UK and the United States, which produced the vaccines locally and, you know, didn't really share that well with the rest of the world early on, although we did have uh, agreements so that Canada had much earlier access compared to other places. Having said that, there's no substitute for having local vaccine production. And this is a really, this is a health security issue and the ability to produce vaccine locally so that we can actually serve Canadians uh, even faster should the next emergency come is, it's, it's just extremely important. So that, that's a significant lesson learned and that's a very smart investment. Uh, let's go on that lessons learned as we sit three years back from this. Um, uh, obviously, vaccination was a key issue and, and things have really advanced. It also exposed weaknesses in our healthcare system, which hopefully we're now focusing on. What did we learn through this three year period? Well, you know, I don't mean this tongue in cheek. I think some people learn more than others. And, you know, at the end of the hmm. day, we need key decision makers to make smart decisions, right? We we knew well before the pandemic that our healthcare system was fragile, and the health yeah. the, the the pandemic certainly exposed the weaknesses of our healthcare system. And when I say healthcare system, I really mean a very large canopy, talking about not just hospitals but our primary care, and talking about how our healthcare system integrates with public health as well. I mean, like if this didn't show the importance of having a strong healthcare system, I don't know what does. So, you know, we, we, we were overwhelmed multiple times. There were times where we ran out of ICU beds. You, you know, we remember people setting tents outside of hospitals so we could care for patients. We had times where we had, uh, uh, you know, to bring in healthcare workers from other provinces to help out. So, you know, and this is a Canada-wide issue. It's not just a local issue here in Ontario. Uh, so we clearly need to bolster our healthcare system and our public health system because there will be pressures, and we certainly will need the surge capacity Uh, in the future. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Uh, Doctor, uh, again, thank you so much for holding our hand through this and keeping us well uh, in tune of what was going on. You and the other people that have uh, done the same, very much appreciated. Thank you so much. 
My pleasure. Have a great day. Tomorrow or three o'clock uh, tomorrow morning, coronation of King Charles is going to happen. We've got a royal watcher who is over there. Saad Salman with his royal commentary founder and editor of the Royal Watcher, uh, the Royal Watcher blog dot com to find out more and royal contributor to L and is with us now. Saad, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hello. Thank you for having me on. All right. First thing, just look around. Tell us what you see. What's it like uh, being there uh, during the cor- during a, a coronation or just before? What's the buzz? What's the feeling? It's quite different. So I was here last year for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which was really chaotic and a lot of events happening. Uh, then I was back, um, unfortunately, when the Queen passed away, and I could sense the crowds there. Right now, I just walked right in front of Buckingham Palace through the park. And there's an excitement through the air, but it's definitely a lot more muted. And because of the lack of events, there's only one main day of events. It isn't really that many people coming out. The weather is quite awful. At the same time, people are really excited for the king and queen and other members of the royal family. There were two receptions today, and the royal family came out in the middle of that to greet the crowds. And uh, they really came out in their rows for that. So are you are they expecting smaller crowds than for those past events you were speaking of? Um, I think they have been controlling the crowds quite a bit. Uh, there's a restriction that no one can arrive to camp out uh, and stand in front of the palace before 6 a.m. Lots of people are staying away. Then there were a bunch of kind of the weather is really bad. There were really heavy uh, rainstorms. And there's thunder expected tomorrow, so people might stay away for that reason as well. So as the day progresses, tell us what you're going to be doing, what's going to happen in the next 24 hours or so. So um, right now it is almost 11 p.m. in London, and exactly 12 hours, King Charles will be crowned at Westminster Abbey. The royal family will leave uh, the palace. The king and queen will be in a carriage. They'll go to the abbey where there's an hour-long ceremony that involves the crowning of the king. The Queen, there's a series of ancient rituals, the ointing, the handing of the regalia, there's the robing and the derobing. The crowns will be changed and the King and Queen will walk out of the Abbey with their crowns on, get into a golden carriage and ride back from the Abbey to Buckingham Palace where they will appear on the balcony. Um, I, you know, I, I, hate to, I hate to come in the back door this way, Saad, but what about uh, Harry? Is he around? Is he a part of any of this? Has anybody seen him yet? So, uh, so far today, actually, the royal family has been pretty inconspicuous. We haven't seen many of them. We've seen the king um, and the prince of Prince of Wales. Queen Camilla has not been seen at either of the two receptions today so far. And I have just come back from a place where uh, I knew the foreign royalty were having dinner. I've seen multiple members of the royal family, Princess Anne, the uh, Deaconess of Edinburgh. Um, There was uh, the Duke of York and all the foreign kings and queens who are in London, they were all attending a dinner there, and that was quite a private occasion um, just at a club in London, whereas uh, kind of a Harry was a notable absent. He is not part of those family festivities. Uh, will we see him at all? Will he just be at the actual uh, coronation, and then boom, he's gone? I've heard that. I believe that is the case so far. Uh, I am seeing reports that they have released a seating plan. I've just been kind of in transit, so I haven't had a chance to see that. But his role is very limited. The Prince of Wales is rather playing homage to the king, whereas Harry has no role. His family is not a part of the day. He may uh, appear in official portraits and stuff, but otherwise he does not have any actual role.
at all. Uh, obviously, we know there's lots of tension between the family and, and what has happened with him moving to uh, to the the U.S. and such. Um, any any information or inclination if he has had conversations with the rest of the family? Are they hanging out, uh, or is he just still sort of a, a black sheep? I think, um, given that he wasn't there at tonight's dinner and he wasn't at the receptions, I think the situation is um, pretty strained. Um, the revelations of recent weeks and months have not shared well for the Duke suspects. Um, they are uh, no longer enjoy the place that they once held as the head of the royal family. So, uh, are you expecting to see him over the course of this weekend? For example, will he show up on a TV show or show up doing something else that is separate? Or is he just respecting it's his dad's day or weekend and in and out? I think he really is uh, hoping to respect. So far, we haven't seen any leaks from suspects at all. But that may change given uh, the circumstances. We never really know uh, what the due suspects. Um, there's usually some sort of release or leak. We do know that he has arrived in London, which was also released to the media by their team. So they are definitely keeping a track on stuff, though we're not really sure how much that is going to be. What about who is coming? The dignitaries, the leaders from around the world that are coming. We understand the Prime Minister is on his way. Who else is going? So I've actually just seen quite a lot of them uh, with my own eyes. So we have the King of Sweden. There's the king and queen of the Netherlands, the king and queen of Belgium, Spain, Malaysia, Jordan, Bhutan, Tonga, Thailand, Lesotho, um, the mm-hmm. grandees and grandnesses of Luxembourg, the prince and princess of Monaco, the crown prince and princesses of Denmark, Norway, and Japan. So really, royalty from around the world, there's heads of state, there's a host of different presidents and prime ministers who are in town. So this is really one of the most major gatherings in recent history as uh, for this major historic event. Do we know if the U.S. president is going or just sending a representative? No, um, the president has not arrived, but his wife, the first lady, has arrived. So the president announced that he was not going to be attending, but Miss um, Biden is here. And is there have been any sort of chatter, uh, sad, in regard to where the prime minister is staying when he is there? Obviously, lots of commotion after we found out much later that he stayed in a $6,000 a night uh, hotel room on the Thames during the Queen's funeral. Has there been any sort of chat as to where the prime minister is staying or even any of the other leaders? Um, I believe they are staying at hotels around London, but the exact arrangements are confidential due to security reasons. Uh, I would think that um, some, uh, at least, cost of that would be covered by the UK government since this is a major diplomatic occasion, but I have no idea about the exact specifics. What is security like there, again, compared to the other events that you have been there for and such? I mean, can you tell that uh, there's a lot there? So I can just tell, um, yes, there is security is uh, kind of everywhere. But for the foreign dictators and stuff, so I was just at that dinner I was talking to you about. So we saw some of the royal family arrive with a police escort, a few motorcycles of guards. And other members, like Princess Anne, just walked straight in off the street, and hmm. not, not a guard in sight. So really, it depends on what the threat are assessing for that aspect, whereas there's security all around London these days, because this is one of a really high-profile event. What are you most looking forward to over the next 24 hours? 
So I'm really looking forward to seeing the ancient pageantry at the coronation, uh, the mm. king and queen, what they're going to be wearing, um, the crown jewels, and then the whole carriage procession and all the this display of pageantry that hasn't been seen in decades. Saad Salman with us, Royal Commentary, founder and editor of the Royal Watcher, royalwatcherblog.com to find out more, and Royal Contributor for L. Saad, thanks so much for the uh, sharing of the stories and such. Have a great time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Andrea Horbath, Mayor for the City of Hamilton. She is with us now. Andrea, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, I am, absolutely. I hope you are as well. So far, so good, Andrea. I was mentioning uh, what Fred Eisenberger had said that, and any advice that he had gotten over the years or learned from Bob Wade, and he said, always be the calmest one in the room, which uh, obviously uh, he was. What do you take from uh, that time, and, and did you learn anything um, from the former mayor at all? Oh, absolutely, and I think it's, it's kind of interesting that, uh, that former Mayor Eisenberger used exactly the same word that I used earlier today in an interview, which is that he was calm. He, he yeah. was calm. And that calm, that calm demeanor uh, creates a, an environment of, um, of, of confidence, right? Of, of, uh, of trust and of confidence uh, that everything's going to be okay. And of course, you know, the first council following amalgamation, it was pretty tumultuous. And there was a lot, there was a lot, let's just put it that way, a lot. And yeah. uh, he really, he really was able to, uh, with that kind of statesperson-like demeanor and that that calm way of doing things, he was able to, you know, guide the ship. Uh, are you surprised he only served the one term? Uh, well, you know what? The, he served many terms in Ancaster, and yeah. uh, it was definitely a big, big job. And sometimes the best thing a leader can do is know, you know, that they've that they've done what they came to do, and now it was, it's time to turn the reins over. Sometimes it's about family and the pressures uh, that um, that political and public life bring uh, to to families. So sometimes it's about okay, I'm ready to retire. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just think we have to respect the, the, that decision when he made it. But also, I think today and over the next couple of days is a time to just reflect on you know how well he served both Ancaster when he was the mayor there, but also as the first uh, the first amalgamated city of Hamilton mayor. He he did a he did a great job. And over and above amalgamation, I mean, that was a tough time for the city. I mean, you know, the 90s and such and getting through all that. I remember, you know, waiting for Hamilton to turn the corner. That was a difficult time for the city. It was a difficult time. It was, uh, I think the 2000 was the, the uh, election year, for, or was the amalgamation year and the election year. And uh, it, was, it was really tough. I mean, it, it, it was, there were lots of concerns. There was downloading that had happened in the late 90s and, and he was dealing with that, uh, trying to kind of help us to, to move forward when, when it seemed as though the troubles were becoming harder to, uh, to navigate uh, as opposed to easier. And so it was a bit of a dual challenge, right, the amalgamation and the downloading and, and taking on things that municipalities hadn't had to take on in the past, housing, uh, land ambulance, right? Uh, it, was, it was really, uh, really a, a, a quite a challenging time, but he... He did this uh, great service of, of leadership. There's just no doubt. It's amazing how the city has changed just in that short time that he, uh, since he was, uh, he was the mayor from 2000 to 2003, as you said. What was the feeling around City Hall today? Uh, it was interesting because I think one of the things that was I, that I thought was it was kind of I don't know it was kind of like the universe saying something uh, mayor uh, former mayor way that passed last night uh, and today we had our council priority workshop 
And so mm. here we are all these years later, 23 years later, uh, with a two-thirds turnover on council, which is the biggest turnover since, actually, the amalgamated council. And, mm. um, and, and it, it just, I thought it was interesting. I think that we, we, we went through a day of, um, of intense work, uh, but with, um, with a really positive open minds and open hearts. And I think some of that might even have been in some odd way and certainly not spoken a bit of a mm. tribute to the, um, to the foundation that Bob Wade uh, laid, laid for the city. Maybe even a safe phrase, a safe word, whatever gets out of hand, Bob Wade. Everybody calm down. <laughs> oh, there you go. I like that idea. I like there that idea. There you go. Having said that, there were, there were very few people, you know, that are city councillors now uh, that knew Bob Wade personally. I mean, myself, obviously, Councillor mm. Jackson, Councillor Clark, Councillor McNeekin. Uh, but, um, but, but very few others. And so, uh, I believe Councillor Wilson actually as well, Maureen Wilson. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, so it, there wasn't a, a lot of discussion, but we certainly did take a moment to, uh, acknowledge this passing. Andrea Horbath with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton, reflecting on the life and times of former Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Bob Wade. Andrea, as always, thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You do the same. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, O'Reilly's coming up. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word and share in emails. Mayor Bob Wade has passed away. Rest in peace, Mr. Mayor. It's great to hear positive talk about an elected official That seems to be a rarity nowadays.